Welcome to the Alan and Ovary podcast. I'm Sally Dewar, CEO of AO Consulting. Joining me today to discuss some of the challenges and opportunities facing the boards and senior management teams of banks is Sawin Bischoff, Chair of JP Morgan Securities and a leading independent non-executive director. Sawin has been one of the most significant and influential figures in the City of London and the wider business world of the past 20 years. In addition to his role at JP Morgan, Sawin chaired the UK's Financial Reporting Council. He's also been the chairman of Schroeder's, City and Lloyd's Banking Group. So in welcome. I'm so delighted that you could join me today. Let's start by thinking about the evolving nature of boards and really specifically how um, there has been a change of roles and responsibilities of boards, of banks in particular, since the global financial crisis and just what you've observed and seen through that period. Very nice to be with you, Sally. Uh, we've known each other for some years and I think it's um, very nice to have uh, this opportunity to have a little chat about uh just those kind of things. Boards in general um, and uh, financial um, sector boards, I, I think, are somewhat different because financial sector boards, banks, um, more generally the financial sector, have got uh, regulation has increased. Uh, I don't think it has increased that much on other companies. Perhaps the energy companies, uh, there's uh, some um, greater regulation coming up because of, of the environment and so on. But um, the the expectations of shareholders in relation to boards and board behaviors and and and, and so on has basically heightened um, um, you're expected um, to have more diverse boards i happen to think that that's a good thing uh, you're expected to have boards which uh, are specifically knowledgeable about technology which i think is good um, um, Nowadays, you probably also are expected to have board members who have a particular interest in and knowledge of the environment. Um, so there, there is more specialization on boards and more diversity on boards. And that's uh, driven basically by the shareholders. For financial companies, it's driven both by the shareholders and the regulators. The regulators obviously uh, expecting, uh, requiring a greater amount of capital uh, to back uh, the activities. Um, it's gone up from 4% to 12%, uh, you know, roughly. Uh, so it's trebled, um, which I think in relation to the difficulties that the financial circumstances environment has brought is not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Uh, banks are going to be much more resilient in dealing with problems. So that's where I think the major changes have been. And do you think that board members individually and collectively see um, a greater degree of accountability and in, and in what way do they feel that every day? Well, the regulated, obviously, companies do feel uh, because they have got uh, you know requirements uh, in relation to that, particularly in the United Kingdom, not so much necessarily in the United States. But I think it's just the responsibility that's placed on boards by shareholders um, and I suspect even internally by the chairman, by the chief executive, um, you know, the recruitment of board members is a process which I think is, is probably lengthier now than it used to be. Um, headhunters obviously are involved, uh, internal people are involved. I, I, I think it's just a, a, a wider process. Uh, you're trying to 
recruit from a wider group of people, and and that's that's I think that is good, uh, and that is because the expectations on board members is greater. Right. Yeah. yeah. So maybe just picking up on a few of the points that you've made there. First of all, around board diversity, and you mentioned that you think it's it's good boards are required to be more diverse and more diverse in, in different ways. So it's gender diversity, ethnic diversity, diversity of thought and maybe social background. So can you just talk a bit about the, the benefits and maybe some of the challenges of, of that? Right. Um, diversity, gender diversity, I think, is is fully accepted now. I, I think um, in, in this country, there have obviously been proponents of that. I myself have been very much involved in it, the 30% club, etc., etc. And um, I think it's it's being exceeded now. Um, momentum has been created, which I think is good. Uh, um, obviously, uh, this is I'm talking about the board level now. There hasn't been as much momentum at the executive level. Uh, yes, we do have a number of CEOs who are female. Um, we do have on executive committees more females, but and it's not yet as widely. Um, I think boards are not as widely, executive committees are not as widely diversified yet as boards. Um, it's wider than that, though. It is ethnic diversity, I think, uh, is, is, is coming through and it's um, going to be increasingly required. Um, I think that's a good thing um, because it represents not that you want to have boards totally mathematically um, reflect the population of the country as a whole, but there should be an element where that comes through socially and in, in, in other ways. So have you seen um, a greater emphasis on learning and development programs and well, how important do you think those are given the broad spectrum of individuals that you're having join a bank board, for example, who may not necessarily have the experience of working in a bank or understanding those challenges that the banks face? Well, um, you have very, we all have very, very thorough induction processes um, with um, management and outside counselors, lawyers, for example, accountants, and etc. Et uh, and um, we look very hard at the regulatory aspects that they are expected to meet. Um, and then there is continuous learning. I mean, uh, one of the things that no activity, whether that's financial services um, or oil or energy, stands still. And I think continuous learning actually is quite important. Um, some of us do that through deep dives, uh, continuous deep dives. Um, some of us do it by um, highly focused sessions in, in relation to technology, for example, um, because quite a number of financial institutions are actually technology company with a financial institution attached uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, so that's important. But uh, continuous learning is expected now, and I think board members realize that to keep up it's um, something that they should be happy to do. Um, it's time-consuming, obviously, but that's part of uh, it's part of your um, your board agenda, uh, effectively. So, can we talk a little bit about culture? Um, and that's, I guess, from a, the chair's perspective, you have to think about it from two angles. One is the culture that you create in your boardroom, and the second is. Um, the culture of the organization and how boards get a grip or an understanding of that culture given the sort of oversight role that they they play. So could you talk about both of those two? 
the second one, uh, I think, is, is uh, slightly easier to, to, to determine what the culture of the firm is. And I think um, many boards do this by having sessions with their leadership team, to probably two down from the leadership team, uh, you know, two, two levels below the executive committee, because they see the executive committee at, at boards, at dinners, you know, that, that kind of thing. And uh, the engagement with that group, uh, who may very well rise in the organization and uh, are probably culture carriers, is, is quite important to see how they, what they think about things and uh, how they view the organization as a whole. Um, we certainly have sessions with uh, that group um, on an anonymous basis uh, before every board meeting, for example. We have a breakfast uh, and ask them to talk about anything that they'd like to talk about. It's it's not recorded. It's not. Uh, we do make notes, anonymous notes, which we can occasionally, um, it's useful for management to know about these kind of things. Establishing the culture. Uh, yes, the chairman... I think has a big role to play there, but the biggest role is that of the CEO. Uh, the CEO establishes, in a way, the culture. And I think the board um, has to make a judgment as to whether this is the right culture, and that probably is discussed between the chairman and the CEO. It's probably discussed at the executive committee. It certainly is discussed at the board. Um, but the establishment of the culture is largely, in my view, the person who lives that culture day to day uh, rather than the outside directors who uh, live it perhaps uh, one out of five days. So, uh, but it is important that the board buys into the culture that the CEO is establishing or trying to establish. And, and do you find it's possible to produce meaningful management information that supports, um, it's one of the things that, that companies you know, find difficult all the time. But have you found that sort of set of management information that helps you assess whether the culture is as leadership are telling you, as you're experiencing yourself, as you interact with um, employees at different levels? Um, or is that, is that too big a problem to solve for? Well, I think when we think of management information, we tend to think of management information of a financial nature and, you know, um, black and white and, and, and numerical and, and something that you can say, um, yes, I understand, uh, or I need so further explanation. But, you know, it is something that is, is relatively obvious. Management information on something like culture is very, very difficult to produce. You see it in when things go wrong in a company, um, how management then deals with it, how the board deals with it. Uh, you don't see it you know, on a day-to-day -day basis when it's going right. You may see it in the results and say, well, the results are partly because we've got a good strategy, because we've got a good management team, because we've got a good culture and so on, but you can't identify you know, what proportion uh, relates to culture. Yeah, it's very hard, isn't it? And, very hard. And and do you find that when you think about your role as uh, chair of the remuneration committee, for example, are you able to bring elements of culture or ambassadors for culture into those conversations? Yes, on a negative basis, though. Uh, uh, you know, it's the something's gone wrong and how should, in fact, uh, Mr. X or Ms. Y um, be uh, dealt with in relation to whether it's clawback or re reducing of um, the comp total compensation or uh, not promotion, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. So we do see it there, but it comes out of not the 
in most cases comes out on the negative side. Of course, there are um, aspects that the remuneration committee does consider when management puts forward certain people who are particularly good culture carriers. So it does, uh, you know, management does actually highlight certain uh, people um, as being culture carriers, being particularly good in relation to the way that they deal with their own people, the customers, the the, the broader team in, 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 inside the organization. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a real what one that, that boards and senior management really struggle with all the time. To yes. what extent is it a negative yes. incentive versus yes. a positive That's driver? Right. Yes. Um, it's a bit of both, of course. Of course. But yeah. the most telling one is the negative side. Yeah. Yeah. And the regulator, of course, highlights that particularly in financial, you know, clawback in financial companies. Yeah. So let, let's talk a bit about um, another sort of driver of cultural change, which has been the COVID-19 pandemic and um, how the pandemic has changed boards in the way they operate, um, you know, sort of the, the hybrid meeting structure, the accessibility of directors, the ability to keep in touch with the executive. What's been your sense of that? From the point of view of a non-executive director, I chairman, um, what COVID has done is uh, made us all that much more accessible. Um, it is not, um, you know, you might have spent two or three days a week uh, with, with your organization. Um, you probably still do that, but the hours are so irregular. I mean, you get phoned up and say, can you take a, or an email is sent to you, can you take a call, can you t- do a Zoom call, etc." So much more accessibility, uh, much less uh, contact, uh, person-to-person contact, um, which I think board members find really rather disappointing. Um, um, I don't know what management feels, uh, but, um, you know, it is disappointing. Uh, I remember, in fact, having uh, one of our strategy meetings, which I insisted would be in person. We had a, a huge hall, you know, all very well distanced microphones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and at the end of the strategy uh, day, um, some of my non-executive directors came up to me and said, "You know, this has been the best strategy that day that we've had." And I asked, "I said, is it because of the content, because of the discussion, etc.?" No, because we saw each other face to face, and you know, uh, it is quite important uh, to, to to people and for management too. Uh, so. That's been a change, um, and I think many of us are really very pleased that we've been able to get together. Hybrid meetings are a possibility. They're, they're not. Uh, they're, they're better than uh, t- total Zoom. So I have to say that um, virtual meetings, uh, the way that all of us have been able to deal with them, has been very surprising to me. That uh, you know they have worked, and the technology has worked pretty well other than many people forget uh, you know that they are still on mute and, and so on the famous thing you're on mute Joe uh, but uh, the uh, but it has shown how important the person-to-person contact is uh, both with management and amongst board members themselves and the non-executive board members themselves yeah, yeah. and and have board um, have banks started to operate differently as a consequence of the pandemic, or is it naturally just resuming to where the, where the banks operated previously? Well, at the executive level, of, of course, there is 
by its very nature um, a, a, a greater degree of inquiry um, about people dealing, uh, doing things from home, uh, um, you know, and how it's documented, how it's documented for management, but also how it's documented for the regulators, um, which I think is quite important. And, uh, you know, can it be traced back, et cetera, et cetera, is there an audit trail and, and, and so on. Um, that I think has worked reasonably well, although, you know, there have been mistakes made. Um, uh, but um, I think at the, at the most important level, most senior management actually would prefer their people to be in the office. Um, at the most senior level, they do come into the office, um, partly as, as um, an example for the rest of, uh, of, of, of management. Interestingly enough, at the most junior level, we're now finding that they would like to come back into the office uh, because they realize, as we have all in our careers found ourselves doing, we learn a great deal from our seniors, how they act with clients, how they act uh, in difficult situations. So it's, it's actually a very important part of um, how organizations, particularly organizations in the services business, um, I suspect the same thing applies to law firms or consulting firms or um, accounting firms and so on. So um, it is quite interesting, but there is a middle level which particularly in a place like London, where there is quite a lot of commuting uh, going on, which um, has actually seen, or think they've seen the benefits of, let's say three or four day working um, rather and, 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 you know, and I think that that is becoming more embedded uh, now than it has been. Um, so um, what will happen to the young people once they feel that they've got all the knowledge that they need to ha have um, from their seniors, will they in fact, uh, you know, revert to a type of three or four day working? Uh, I just don't know. I suspect we will not have on a weighted basis, five day working. Um, um, you know, there will be some who will work five days a week um, or, or more and others who will not. Uh, but on a, on a weighted basis, that'll be, I think it'll be less than five days. And, and from the um, Audit and Compliance Committee perspective, has there been a um, you know, real focus on the monitoring and surveillance capabilities? Is that a real challenge for banks? It, it is a challenge, uh, but I think it is hugely important. The regulators expect it, the boards expect it, uh, but it is, of course, uh, very much more difficult. But that is not an excuse not to do it. Um, uh, you know, it is important that these things are monitored on a, on a compliance basis, on a financial basis too, yeah. So let's shift a bit and talk about another really important topic, which is that of the ESG agenda and how that's impacting banks. And, and specifically, the biggest challenge, I guess, at the minute for boards is around the upcoming TCFD reporting requirements. And maybe if you could give us a sense of some of the opportunities, the challenges that the reporting disclosure obligations bring and how boards are thinking about that. Mm. Uh, you talk about opportunities. I think at the moment it's seen more as a challenge than opportunities, but uh, opportunities undoubtedly are there. Um, and I think one has to recognize that. Uh, opportunities uh, perhaps in uh, the greening of um, 
the planet, which will involve, uh, which will require a lot of money, and 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 uh, banks will be, and the capital markets generally, um, will obviously be much in demand uh, for that. Um, I think the reporting requirements, which will be expected by the SEC, for example, uh, on American companies, will be quite interesting to see how they deal with it. We are not quite as far down as the Americans. I mean, the Americans were behind on environment, but uh, but I think in relation to the reporting side with the SEC is probably ahead. And that will be uh, interesting to all of us how that is done and how different companies will deal with it. Uh, much of it will actually depend ultimately on the counterparties that you're dealing with, getting the information right. I mean, it, for example, for, for banks to be uh, completely knowledgeable about what a major oil company is doing in relation to that depends on the oil company itself uh, um, certifying what it is doing and, and then translating it uh, so that uh, uh, the, the bank's involvement uh, with that industry can actually be gauged and, 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 and enumerated. Um, so the information flow that's required um, is is considerable um, and my own view on that is that we shouldn't worry too much about that it will come i mean after all uh, companies give quite a lot of information to the rating agencies um, and uh, therefore they they may in fact feel that they can give similar information in relation to how they're dealing with um, uh, reducing uh, investment in in fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm, I'm actually hopeful that this will, uh, will work. One of the big things will be um, how the public reacts to this, because the public still feels that, uh, a large part of the public um, feels that fossil fuel usage is, is, is not a good thing. Whereas I think the, um, many of us feel that this cannot be done on a cliff basis. It has to be done on a transition basis. Many of the fossil uh, companies are very profitable and their cash flow can actually be used, hopefully, while they're still financeable, um, in uh, finding new ways of, of um, 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 and creating energy uh, sources for, for, for the public and for industry and, and so on. So um, I think the big thing uh, is how the public at large is going to recognize that it cannot be done overnight, that it needs um, time and it needs the cash flow, uh, actually, that some of these people generate from the very usage of uh, fossil fuels and, and uh, you know, um, which obviously has got an, a negative um, um, aspect uh, for, 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 many, for many people. So do you think um, the financial services sector is sufficiently focused currently on that transition planning because that is obviously the key isn't it is where where a firm is today versus where it wants to be and how to close that gap do you think that's that's of sufficient focus or do you think at the minutes it's all about just really trying to understand the plethora of regulation that's coming through and getting these first sets of disclosure requirements done i think it's probably a little bit more of the latter um uh, particularly I mean, financial firms can actually say what, in relation to their own activities, it's it's very easy. No, not very easy, but I mean, it's it's uh, it can be done. 
uh, it's really the the position that the counterparty, the the people that you deal, your customers um, have, and it's that information which ultimately informs what you can actually say about your activities in that sector. Um, so I come back to uh, you know the information sharing, uh, the information transparency that will come from your customers, and that they are willing to 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 in fact uh, make known what they're doing, uh, so that you can actually make known what you're doing and and, and so on and. and um, but I mean that that is the that is a difficult thing. I think um, people are very conscious of it, um, but they do realize that this is not going to be able to be done overnight. Even uh, even if you admit, even if you acknowledge that there is a there is a transit um, transmission arrangement uh, over uh, over a number of years. I mean, after all. Um, what I think is important is actually to put dates on these things, uh, whether it's 2030, 2035, 2040, rather than just 2050. It's, yeah. it's, it's a long way away. Yeah, it's too yeah. far. Yeah. And um, what about litigation risk in this space? Do you think it's um, it's high? Do you think that the there's sufficient focus on uh, greenwashing, for example? And as boards, what can you do to really be on top of that? I think the litigation risk is... It's a risk. It's not high at the moment. You know, litigation risk for mis-selling, for example, is there. Greenwashing may be a form of mis-selling. Um, but uh, I think it's not the highest risk. The highest risk is, is really the, the pure environmental risk uh, rather than what you say about it. So let's move on to um, the current environment and, you know, the period that we're going through at the minute, which is economic and political volatility. How do banks and bank boards think about that in the context of the job and, and the role that they have? Well, first of all, the risks have increased um, and uh, you can mitigate the risk by not doing any business. Uh, that's not what your shareholders would want, uh, um, not want your customers would want, uh, whether that's retail customers um, or indeed uh, corporate customers. But we have to acknowledge that there is more risk. Um, you know, there simply is more risk. Uh, volatility leads to risk. Uh, inflation ultimately leads, leads to risk. Um, uh, banks are to some extent protected because they've got assets um, as security which rise in line with inflation or close to inflation. But um, in cash flow terms uh, for their customers, this is quite tough. Uh, and uh, one may the banks may have to go through a difficult period first um, before the and, and, and provide for those risks uh, in the balance sheet, which one is already seeing. I mean, uh, provisions for bad debts, uh, i.e. customers not being able to meet their obligations are rising. Uh, and this will continue until the inflationary spiral is broken. Uh, the difficulty with that is that the orthodoxy about breaking the inflationary spiral is lower economic activity, um, lower expectations um, by consumers, lower spending by consumers because of those lower expectations. Um, I call it a recession. Um, um, you know, that, that is the awful thing uh, about it. Uh, and yet uh, many of us believe that 
the problems about inflation, particularly inflation that is embedded um, over a period of time, um, are greater for the uh, bulk of the population than a short, sharp recession. Yeah. Um, and you know, in ta- in times like this, other risks sort of come to the forefront. So we talked about technology previously. I mean, the one that really springs to mind for me is technology risk, so cyber risk or ransomware um, risk. What, what, how, how should boards be thinking about those? Boards should be thinking about it by by, by having really quite frequent um, reports to the risk committee uh, by the technology people. By, as I say, by having a board member who's particularly uh, familiar and 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 knowledgeable about um, uh, technology. Um, uh, and by that, I don't mean a 25-year-old uh, who is just super knowledgeable, but uh, somebody who's been in business and, uh, you know, perhaps a chief technology officer at a major company. So um, th- these, these technology risks are real. Um, uh, hacking, of course, is, is, is just you know, to get into the systems of a bank, given the complexity of its operations, is really, it can be very harmful to society as a whole. Uh, you know, there are views that, for example, uh, well, uh, there are views that a number of, of companies that have been hacked uh, have actually had a deleterious uh, secondary effect on on, on population, on customers on, on the investors and, and so on. So yes, it's become a major, it's not as easily discernible as financial risks, but that is no excuse for not, in fact, uh, spending a lot of time on it and thinking about it. Thank you so much. Is there anything or any message that you'd like to leave in terms of um, how boards should be operating today, anything else that we haven't covered? Well, I think uh, there's a general point is uh, the best boards are actually boards which are willing to acknowledge that they're not perfect um, and uh, uh, either in their composition or in what they do. And uh, there's continuous learning even for boards. Um, On the other hand, um, um, you know, because the way that boards have developed, particularly international boards, um, the ability to influence quite a large proportion of the population in various countries is is important and therefore, um, or has become more important, and therefore the responsibilities of boards um, has basically increased. The time that boards have to spend um, has increased undoubtedly. the expertise that is expected of boards has increased. So the burden on boards, I'm not saying it's not nice to be um, a board member because it's very interesting and I can contribute, but the burdens have undoubtedly increased. Yeah. Many thanks to Wynne. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. And to you. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Mm-hmm.